Whiskey, whiskey, the singer's getting sore. We raise the roof now and we're lowering the floor. The band is blistering, but we got a little more. When I say one, two, you say three, four. One, two, three, four. Fred Minnick, welcome back to the podcast. I think the last time you were on, we uh, we had you on with Davin, and that, that was one of my favorite episodes. Uh, we talked Canadian whiskey, American whiskey, uh, our favorite whiskeys. Uh, so that was a great podcast. I'm so happy to have you back on. Yeah, I remember that too because we had that really great old Dusty that was just magnificent, and I think it opened my eyes a little bit about how good like uh, some some of those Dusty Canadian whiskeys are because they usually you know, stub my nose at them. But yeah, since then I've been, uh, I've been collecting old Canadian whiskeys. Oh, no way. So, cause we had the Gooderham, uh, Centennial, uh, released in, uh, in 1967 as a 15 year old. Um, and, and really a rare example because like, you go, know, you can buy a lot of Canadian club and, you know, other, um, kind of, uh, you know, kind of lower, lower tier, I guess would say whiskeys from the dusties, but nothing, you know, there's fewer, fewer kind of the higher quality ones. So what did, what did you pick up? Uh, I've got some, uh, well, so I got like, uh, some Canadian bottle to bond when they were doing bourbons, uh, a couple from Shinley. I got one, I got some crown Royal from the sixties. I got a lot of minis of like Canadian club from back in the day. And, yeah, so I've, I've I've really kind of made a point to find some of those older, um, those older Canadian whiskeys because of that podcast. And are is the how is the pricing on those? Because I've I've never even looked in. I know the the bottle we had wasn't outrageously priced. Like what what are you finding out there? So one of them that I found uh, was a Seagram's Pedigree, which was a. Uh, it was labeled as a Canadian straight bourbon bottled and bond. And of course, Canadians made a lot of bourbon prior to the declaration. They made bourbon a unique product, unique product in the United States in 1964. And that one was, it's kind of a, a relic, you know, it's a piece of history. Fortunately, not a lot of people know about it. So, you know, when they, when they get it, they just see that it's, that's Canadian and they kind of dismiss it. So I'm able to get them for, um, a lot, a lot less expensive than I would if it was, you know, the equivalent at a, at a U.S. distillery. And I find that I find that odd because those Canadian bourbons are so much more rare mm-hmm. for many reasons. Like our governments kind of went toe to toe in trade disputes in the 1930s over whether or not Canada could be uh, bottling their stuff as bourbon and bottled and bond. And, uh, you know, in my book, uh, Bourbon, the Rise, Fall, and Rebirth of an American Whiskey, I found some pretty cool uh, anecdotes of, like, your uh, your government, you know, talking trash on the U.S. government for, <laughs> uh, for our trade practices. And here we are today. <laughs> <laughs> right. How <laughs> topical. Well, well, this all started. Um, this all really started when uh, Crown Royal released the Bourbon Mash. I think that that's really what started everything. It seemed because uh, we, we had yeah. We had, the contem- in the contemporary sense, you know, it, it's pretty. The law is pretty clear. You know, you can't be you can't be overdoing it with um, you know with the term bourbon um, if from other spirits. But at the same time. I know for a fact that the distillers in Canada 
do refer to those mashes as bourbon mashes. And that's an absolute fact. It's not anybody who's in whiskey understands what they mean by that. Mm-hmm. But the marketers are trying to take advantage of bourbon's popularity. And mm-hmm. and that it's it's really as simple as that. And and you know, there's been many of American whiskeys to try and take advantage of Crown Royal's popularity. And Crown Royal didn't has not cared too much for that, so they've you know, they've done their suits, but you've seen um, a, a plethora of bags come into the market from a packaging perspective. You've seen right. various types of uh, brands refer to themselves as the crown this, the crown that. So you have, you know, anytime something's popular, people who are trying to rise up the ranks or capture a market, they're they're always going to try and borrow a little bit of that uh, brand equity and and that's, I think, you know, it was a bad move by Crown Royal to do that. But it's nothing to, to me, it's nothing any more appalling than the scotches that are uh, putting, putting bourbon barrel, you know, in giant bold letters mm-hmm. um, on their bottles. So, that, I mean, everyone's trying to take advantage of bourbon right now. I mean, for God's sake, there's... Um, you know, there's fast food restaurants who are using bourbon sauces and taking out enormous amounts of um, advertising, you know, connecting themselves to bourbon. So it's just it's it's happening all over the place right now. Yeah, that's right. Like a small batch became such a name on everything, hot sauce and ketchup and, and like I've seen it in olive oil, like small batches, the whole thing, like the, the influences bourbon has had market word wise is interesting I, I want to tell a story i think uh get your perspective on the story because i know davin's told the story before and i've heard the story from a lot of canadian perspective from a canadian perspective but uh let, let me know if there's any contradiction here or or, or you know because as we always say if it's talking about history it's probably 10 different stories uh but apparently the story that i keep hearing is that the original um canadian club when it was sold in the u.s and in canada it was called the club and uh, it was doing very well in the 1800s, in the late 1800s in the U.S. And so one of the practices that, that, that America's passed is they said, well, look, people wouldn't buy the club if they knew it was a Canadian whiskey. They, wouldn't, they would prefer to buy an American whiskey. So they changed laws and labeling so that the, you had to specify where the uh, whiskey came from. And so the, uh, what they, they ended up doing is putting the Canadian club and eventually became CC Canadian club uh, in, in big letters. And that kind of changed the way and it said Canadian whiskey and what have you. Uh, but it changed, it renamed that whole brand. But apparently, you know, Canadian club continued to do very well, even though it had the name Canada in it. And it was clearly labeled as a Canadian whiskey. Uh, I think it's one of the fun stories I keep hearing. I just wanted to get your perspective being from Kentucky. Well, I, what? I think... You know, I think it's important to note that every time that can, uh, Canadian distillers, um, you know, kind of got a strong market in the U.S., American distillers would often, you know, retaliate some form of legislation that would that would attempt to block it, and you know that is repeated throughout the 1800s. And when it wasn't really until that you saw the um, the more business minded pragmatic uh, businessmen in the distilling industry um, start taking out shares in, in Canadian products and so you had you know one of the biggest names in, in all of whiskey was uh, Isaac Bernheim and Bernheim now I mean he has a whiskey named after him he has a distillery named after him 
but he had uh, a lot of interest in Canadian blends, and he was very adamant about blocking the Bottle and Bond Act because he saw it as a threat to um, to straight bourbon. And you know, in a sense, he was right. But um, in, in terms of in terms of like people's uh, you know, thoughts toward Canadian whiskey at the time. I mean, it depends on where you were. I mean, if you were like in Detroit, it was, you know, it was a more, um, more sought after whiskey than let's say something from Kentucky. So it was very much a approximate thing in terms of branding. Yeah. There was not a lot of, of, um, you know, branding like anytime, Anytime something was doing really well and it, and it came from a particular area, they would say, oh, that's good Canadian whiskey or that's good Kentucky whiskey or Pennsylvania whiskey. So like the that, that story, that story is likely very, very true. I don't know the I don't know the depths of, of Canadian clubs legends in terms of like how it was named. But um, that would certainly fall in line with with the rest of the you know, the country's history toward Canadian products in the 1800s. Yeah, yeah. Well, so let, let's let's talk about uh, tariffs. This might be a very short or very long discussion. Um, uh, so, I mean, I think pretty much every listener uh, is aware that uh, Canada and the U.S. are in, in trade disputes over uh, services and products and, and milk, apparently. And um, and so the one of the so one of the, the responses from the U.S. has been to raise tariffs on, on key Canadian products, and the response from Canada has been to raise uh, or to to insert tariffs on key American products. And of course, one of those products being hit is bourbon. Uh, I have a very Canadian perspective about this, and you have an American perspective about this. So I thought this would be an interesting conversation. But do you think this will influence bourbon sales? Uh, what, what do you feel that's going to happen at this point? I don't. I don't think that it could not. I mean, it has to influ- influence bourbon. I mean, it's it's one of those where if the price is going up, and and um, you know the consumers are going to have a choice of you know to buy something else. You know, if like whatever they want you know to drink. The the other side is is that first of all, Canada is already taxing a lot on mm-hmm. whiskey. So like your own whiskeys, you guys are paying far more than you should because your your country's taxing it very very strongly and then you have um you have problems going on in the united kingdom with brexit you know so there's uh, whiskey's a is a overall just in a little bit of an influx it's just it's it's being it's a victim of a lot of uh poor you know policy decisions and because it's popular bourbon will always be a target, especially because it's in President Trump's base. It's the home of two very powerful senators, um, the most powerful in particular, Senator Mitch McConnell. And, you know, the the foreign powers are going to hit where it hurts and they're they're hitting bourbon. Now, right now, I feel like bourbon can most this is going to hurt. Don't get me wrong. Twenty five percent tariffs and growth markets that are their all top 10 export markets, they're, they're going to hurt, but they're bearable. I mean, they're 25%. If those get raised to 75 to a hundred percent, if the European union is able to convince Japan to enter the, um, 
the Terrafor, then Bourbon's fucked because that has been the the exports has been the entire uh, you know marketing piece to the growth of of Bourbon. Like you have big money coming into Bourbon for the first time in a an extremely long time. I mean, there are people investing in bourbon who never would have, or American whiskey. The the founder for Under Armour, for example, starts a distillery in Maryland. Why does he do that? He sees opportunity, and that opportunity is really uh, bursting at the seams overseas, places that are just now really tasting bourbon for the first time. And so there's all this opportunity. And while domestic growth is certainly attractive and they can certainly open more markets in North Dakota, New York and Miami or wherever, you know, they are um, the business people look at international markets as as the future. And so distillers, they're forecasting today's demand based on uh, or they're, they're forecasting tomorrow's demand today because you know, as you know you the bourbon sits in barrels and warehouses for for several years before it's bottled and so you you take away that demand and let's say there's 10 percent less interest overseas that will have a trickle down effect suddenly you'll see jobs lost and uh i mean it's played out before i mean this is this has happened before to bourbon and yeah. it it was not good yeah, I um, I think the you make a good point. Um, well, I guess the one. Well, I'll start with you know the tariffs. So when we're we're saying there's going to you know be a twenty five percent tariff, that doesn't mean our prices are going to go up twenty five percent for bourbon in Canada. It just means the you know whatever that that import price is, which is probably significantly less than what I'm paying at the liquor store, uh, is going to go up twenty five percent. And that could be you know that could be three dollars. That could be six dollars on a $50 bottle that could be well, you know $10 yeah, on a $50 Jack, bottle. I mean the Jack Daniels said that basically it'll cause a 10% increase on their stuff. And I think everybody you know the the fact of the matter is is the businesses are not going to absorb that extra increase. They're going to pass it on to the consumer. It's that simple. Yeah, so you're so I mean here a good example uh, like Jack Daniels, um, and I haven't checked the price recently, but it's probably like a twenty-eight dollar bottle um, uh, of whiskey is going to be up to thirty-one, thirty-two dollars, and this is really you know a, a price-sensitive market. Uh, there's there's a lot of Canadian whiskey in that price point. In fact, there's you know that that's probably going to do similar things if you mix it in with Coke and and whatever else or however you may you may drink that or or, or in cocktails. Um, so, um, so that, that's, that's a big hit on kind of the broad consumer products, the products that pay the bills. Um, I, I don't know how much this will affect the premium market. So like, let's look at like Maker's Mark. Make, I mean, I'm just using this as an example. We, we don't know anything about Maker's Mark and 46 about their sales, but, uh, but like Maker Mark, Mark Mark 46 or, uh, you know, book, well, Jim Beam's, uh, small batch, uh, series, um, you know, the, a price increase there will affect uh sales but but possibly not as much because maybe consumers are more willing to pay the extra eight ten dollars for a premium bottle of bourbon so that you know that's something to consider i guess uh, yeah so i mean the the ultra premium ones are going to have more margins uh but i i mean look i'm not an economist I, i'm not somebody who who figures out what you know how to change pricing to make to make money for your company but what I am is kind of like someone who studied this 
from a bourbon perspective uh, in, in history. And like mm -hmm. I've written extensively about bourbon tariffs. And the fact is, is that when these things start coming on, the conglomerates see uh, reasons to sell spinoff brands, you know, or mm -hmm. something that's going to be less costly. That's something that's going to be, uh, you know, more, more popular in those particular markets. So you could see you could see distributors in the European Union, and this is happening. This is happening right now. They're saying we're going to pass on particular bourbons and put our focus on this vodka. And that yeah. that is a decision that happens at the distributor level because they don't want to have to look at uh, being stuck with something that's higher in price to something that they're going to have to absorb some uh, additional cost to. And they just go to something else. And then that trickles down to the supplier, the people making the whiskey, and the people who are publicly traded are looking at it and say, well – we're losing we're losing markets in Spain and Romania and the United Kingdom. So we need to alter our, our forecast for bourbon. You know, how can we what can we do? And one of the strategies is to sell the brands. And they'll sell them to someone who's more of an American heritage company, like Heavy Hill or uh, Sazerac or even Jim Beam perhaps. And and then um, and then that particular company is out of the out of the market. And so that's that is what has happened in the past. And in addition to that, from the larger perspective, uh, the smaller companies find themselves in incapable of competing with the bigger brands as the bigger brands are forced to focus on domestic markets. And then it becomes like you have, you know, 15 limited editions on the shelf and suddenly, you know, the, they're lowering in price. And a new craft brand is unable to compete with that price. And so they go out of business or if they have any popularity, they sell to someone else. I mean, these are things that have happened in years past. So this is not something that I'm predicting or anything like that. This is something that has happened. And so anytime that markets go away for American whiskey, their conglomerates uh, make business decisions that are best for their bottom line, for their shareholders. And they don't have whiskey's interest at heart. What they have at heart is a is a dollar bill, and it gaining more interest over time. Yeah, whiskey's the biggest enemy, vodka, right? <laughs> I shouldn't say enemy, but oh well, yeah, vodka and, and whiskey they don't get along. You know, they get in a they get in a room and they nuke it out, and vodka usually loses. <laughs> <laughs> but in this case, you're saying, well, if whiskey's going to cost a lot more money, then vodka's going to get. Uh, we, we might see more more of that that flavor vodka that. Uh, that's was so popular in the eighties and nineties. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we need more flavored vodka. The world's just not right with, uh, without them. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's, you know, I, I think in uh, it, it'll be interesting. I, I think the Canadian market, you may, uh, you know, kind of from a Canadian market perspective, um, you're seeing, uh, you know, I'll touch on the the micro distilleries, the smaller distilleries. They're already having such problems competing here. I, you know, I I I often get uh, the micro distilleries will reach out to me and you know with products and. Uh, the problem is that that bottle of bourbon that costs fifty dollars on on shelves in 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 the U.S. is probably going to cost over a hundred dollars here in Canada, and a hundred bucks is you know even Canadian dollars is still uh, it's still a significant amount of money to pay for a small brand. So I mean even companies like Whistlepig, I mean your Whistlepig standard um, release is I think about one hundred twenty or one hundred thirty five dollars something like that here for a bottle, and that that's just I you know I, they're in the market, but it's clearly not a big market for them. 
and it's clearly at a price point that I don't think it would, you know, it would ever see growth uh, at that price point. I could be wrong, uh, but it, this doesn't seem likely. Um, but uh, also, you know, but also, I mean, bourbon is, has gotten far more expensive even in Canada. The prices keep, keep going up and where it used to be an easy value play to get people to move to bourbon if they were scotch drinkers to say, hey, you know, you know for, you know, that the $50 scotch isn't there anymore. That enjoyable $50 scotch, there are fewer and fewer of those scotches here. The prices have gone up. But bourbon in Canada is at a, at a premium level is at $50 or less. Uh, you know, your bullets, your four roses, single barrels, da 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 uh, Your Blanton's is about $50, uh, Eagle Rare. So it's, it's kind of a good price point in Canada to, to stick around um, because it is a very competitive price point for Canadian whiskey um, because premium Canadian whiskey tends to be over that price point and, uh, and also for, against scotch. Um, but now, you know, you add 5 or $10 to that price point. If you're not paying $70 for what used to cost you $60, I think that does introduce interesting purchasing decisions. And I think already bourbon is at a price point where it's, it's starting to creep up to the point where scotch drinkers are moving back to scotch. It just seems like there's this, this kind of balance there where you want the value play of the good premium whiskey and, and bourbon's already been at a high point at this point. So I, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, there's, there's calls, there's a lot of, uh, there's been, at least I've seen a few news articles suggest that uh, uh, companies are moving a lot of product into Europe and into Canada uh, before the tariffs officially take effect. I guess they have now, but before they take effect mm -hmm. uh, to kind of help supplies and to kind of manage the short-term yeah. aspect of it. But um, but yeah, long-term-wise, this, this is going to be, a, I, I predict, it's going to be a pretty big problem, as you said. Yeah, it's, and who knows how long it's going to last. You know, I'm, you know, tariffs have been, Tariffs have been there before, and this is this is a 25% tariff is difficult. It's cutting into margins, and people, it's going to be tough. But yeah. it's not breaking backs, and there's still there's still a lot of strong domestic markets that um, you know they can capitalize on. I just I just don't know what that next step is to me that's that's what i'm most afraid of here is mm -hmm. the next step um because if they if they get japan which is like our it's like our prized uh whiskey market i mean i they i think they they probably they have collectors there that have thousands and thousands of bottles i mean it's very japan's like a like Kentucky in a lot of ways. Like there's a lot of bourbon um, enthusiasts there. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think that's a big reason why they, that country owns three or four, you know, prominent companies, you know, being some Tory, they own four roses, they own Blanton's, you know, so they have a, they have a prominent stake in, uh, in, in bourbon. And so if they get, if they get Japan on board with these tariffs, that that could be devastating. If they raise these tariffs up to 100%, that could be de devastating. But right now, it's right now it's manageable. Yeah, I, I can't say. I, you know, this isn't an area of expertise, so naturally, in the podcast, I'm going to talk about it. Um, but uh, the uh, uh, I don't think Canada will ever, ever, ever give up the the, the dairy. Uh, tariffs that it applies. It's just, it's just not possible within the current system. It's just the current system, the way it's set up, it's very anti-American in the respect of like not an American way of doing things. But 
Um, Canada has a, a control supply and demand of, of eggs and, and dairy products, and dairy products in general, rather, uh, to kind of keep farmers uh, paid at, at a reasonable rate. And one of the, the bigger challenges for Canada is that, you know, any of America's producers, Wyoming, you know, big dairy producers like Wyoming or, or what have you, can literally flood the market in Canada with products. And we're such a rounding error to the dairy imports and exports uh, to, to the dairy production in the U.S. that it would kill our dairy business here in Canada. And also, you know, I think that's, that's one of those things where it's, it's a system that maybe shouldn't have existed to begin with. But now that it does exist, um, it's almost impossible to tear that down without... I don't know, without huge expenses coming on the Canadian side. So, you know, it's one of those things, like, I, I don't actually know whether this is the real reason why. And I think, I know there was a, a couple of months ago, there was one of those, uh, I, I'll, I'll just say dumb articles was a dumb article, a dumb article that said, oh, because of, you know, tariff prices on cheese, uh, Canadian pizza is, you know, $25. And they did a comparison of, like, Boston Pizza, which is a Canadian company, oddly, oddly enough, um, that sells pizza for $25 and compared it to like, you know, Pizza Pizza or whatever, uh, 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 you know, a quick delivery service. And, you know, that, that, that's not, that part isn't true, but the, we, uh, we do have cheap pizza in Canada uh, because it's dairy made in Canada. But we do pay a lot of money for foreign uh, dairy products. And certainly our, uh, there are a lot of cheeses here that we pay a lot of money for because of the tariffs. And we still, we still because we buy them in such, you know, because individuals buy in such supply, we're, we're able to pay for that. $7 chunk of cheese that probably costs $3 in the U.S. or $2, but it's not a, you know, it's not a big household expense, I guess is a better way of saying it. Yeah. Well, you, uh, you've, you've officially started a cheese podcast here, Mark. With, uh... <laughs> well, last, last month we were talking, last month we were talking about doing a pot, podcast with, uh, with Canadian legalizing pot. <laughs> Again, not my thing, but, uh, yeah. Um, um, I think so. Uh, anything else you want to say on this topic? Because uh, we've we've got lots of, lots of other stuff talked about. So uh, any? Because I think I think you know. I mean, I think we're all in agreement. It's uh, long term wise, it'll affect sales. Um, vodka wins short term wise, <laughs> and uh, we'll see how things go and how long this lasts. Yeah, I I I think it's too early to tell to really say what what it's going to happen. I just our governor came out and said it's not going to have an effect, and I I couldn't I couldn't disagree more. I mean, it's. You know, tariffs are not good. I mean, we just want our open border, for, you know, open cells, and just it's ridiculous. It, it's just yeah, it's yeah. ridiculous. We uh, bourbon is basically an innocent bystander that you know is being picked on because it's popular, and yeah, it is what it is, man. It's it's what yeah. we live in. So you like whiskey too, huh? My name is Kevin Van Eckeren, and I host a podcast called The State of Logic. We do some great interviews with both comedians and also intellectuals to kind of understand the world and also make you laugh a little bit. We also do quick podcasts to cover current events, make your life a little bit easier so you don't have to watch the mainstream media nearly as much. We all know that's a bit toxic. Come check us out at The State of Logic Podcast. Um, we, uh, we didn't actually talk about what we're drinking. Uh, what can you, um, uh, what do you have there, Fred? So funny story about what I've got here. Uh, this is, uh, I'm, I'm drinking a Jack Daniels, uh, single barrel. And I was, uh, I was a judge on their barbecue contest and I was hanging out with, uh, um, some of their, we were, we were going around tasting barrels. I was with like some country music stars and, and, um, Jim Cantore, who's the, you know, 
international weather celebrity and we were going back and he was drilling he had this old drill and the drill broke off in one of the barrels and uh we tasted this whiskey and this whiskey was so good i mean it was like it was everything you want in american whiskey just full-bodied it had a lot of creaminess to it it was um layered i mean absolutely layered baking spices and caramel and vanillas it just was pronounced and it was so beautiful and i made a comment to the to the people who were there i was like this is the best jack daniels i've ever tasted you know and that, <laughs> that's saying something um so about six months later i get a call from the the, the pr rep for jack daniels and he says, hey, Fred, just wanted to know if there's any charities that you really like. And uh, I was like, I was like, you know, anything veteran. It was a very, it was a pretty obscure question. And I was, uh-huh. you know, um, any veteran related, because I'm an Iraq war veteran. And I just like, I, you know, I love helping veterans. And uh, he's like, oh, cool, because that barrel that you tasted, we're going to donate it to, we'd like to know if it's okay if we would, do- if we could donate the proceeds to uh to those charities and so it's Aww. operation ride home and that um uh, you know helps uh, uh get uh, families of, uh, of of enlisted soldiers home during times of the holiday which that's a very tough time uh to do so and then uh, the brain injury alliance of kentucky and i i suffered a brain injury uh when i was in iraq and uh and that is a this this is a state is a state-run uh, charity organization and has raised, a, has done a, a, an amazing job in helping veterans uh, with brain injuries. So there, you can only get these bottles at uh, Liquor Barn and Party Mart in Kentucky, but every every store will have a have a case. And this is um, this is the. Um, to me, this is the best uh, Jack Daniels ever, and and uh, of course, I thought that long before I had learned of what they were wanting to do with uh, with the charity. So, and oh, so this wonderful. so this is what I'm tasting right now. It's a it's a little sentimental, um, but it's also pretty damn fantastic. Oh, that's the best kind of whiskey. And uh, we'll, we'll put show, on the show notes. We'll put links to the charities you've mentioned, uh, so our listeners can donate because that's a wonderful cause. Um, and, um, I'm going to be in Kentucky next week, so that might be a whiskey I pick up on my way down and or my way back yeah. to Canada. That sounds, that sounds delicious. Uh, I'm sold. I'm sold. Uh, how is that? Uh, it's, so it's Jack Daniels single barrel and it's a special commemorative bottle, I guess it's a uh, got yeah, special labeling it's, on it. it, it it's in, uh, it's in their single barrel barrel proof bottle. Uh, this one's 132.7 proof. Mm-hmm. And to be honest with you, it doesn't taste like it's 132 proof. Nice. Yeah, it's uh, pretty layered. No, I've. Oh, that's awesome. No, and I'm uh, and I'm drinking. Uh, I, I was. Uh, I'm always. You know, we talked about start of the podcast about uh, the influences American whiskey, especially bourbon and, and rye, have had on other world whiskeys. And there's nowhere that that's nowhere more obvious than in Scotch. Um, we have so many more uh, distilleries in Scotland producing whiskeys that are meant to you know help uh, or meant to you know some ways. Uh, provide a similar flavor profile either through 
finishes or through marketing using small batch and American Oak and all this other uh, wording. Uh, but I'm drinking uh, Ardbeg Grooves, which is Ardbeg's annual release. Uh, and I like Ardbeg a lot because they don't teach, they don't treat themselves very seriously. Grooves it has like it literally has like looks like a '70s bottle with '70s writing on it. Um, and it isn't necessarily influenced by American whiskey so much, but uh, you know Ardbeg's a very peated whiskey typically, um, and this one's been finished in wine barrels, so it's got it's got a little bit of that that sweetness there that you would get, uh, and it's just got a lot a lot of oak spice, and I think that's been the big difference in Scotch because the you know 20 years ago Scotch was all about being smooth, they didn't want that that pepperiness in their in their glass, they wanted to be as smooth as possible, and. Every release coming out now is all about that peppery spice that people want. That whiskey that that you know that talks to, that that speaks to them mm-hmm. on their palate. So I thought this is a good example. Narbeg, of course, has released previous releases where uh, they focused on new oak aging um, as well to kind of give more of the caramel notes and the and the oak spice as well. So I thought that was uh, an interesting uh, interesting drink to have. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. Yeah, so let's uh, let's talk about um, so you. Uh, have now a new book out. Now, this isn't going to be a whiskey topic, uh, but uh, it certainly threw me for a loop. But uh, tell us about your new new book. So it's called Me, The Libations, Legends, and Lore of History's Oldest Drink. It's basically, I studied, you know, Mark, I'm fascinated with, with drinking culture and studying the various uh, uh, types of alcohol, you know, through their existence and meat is the oldest, you know, it's dated, uh, six to 9,000 years old. And we're looking at the very first alcohol that was, was branded. And what I mean by that, before we had names like beer and ale and wine, there was mead and mead was, um, you know, comes, it's fermented honey and it basically is connected to, um, the ancient Romans, it's connected to the ancient Greeks. Um, there's, it, you know, in every early alcohol we find that there's like a, a honey connection to it. You know, we're talking things that are found and archaeologists dig up and it's, you know, it's 9,000 years old. They're going to find bases of honey in it. And the Vikings are the ones who really make it famous. And they're, they would say things like we're going to uh, drink mead from the skulls of our enemies, which, by the way, was actually a loss in translation comment. But you had all sorts of connections in many, many, many empires. But so what I did was I studied the what I found to be the seven most influential kind of honey kingdoms, and these were these were kingdoms that had an influence on honey. So if you you can you can find a direct correlation with the growth of of mead and bees and and honey. And so as people would learn to better manage uh, honey and aviaries and bees, uh, you would see mead popping up everywhere. And interestingly, like the Victorian Russians were incredible beekeepers and thus had uh, loads of, of honey. As vodka comes into play and people start distilling potatoes and grains there, uh, mead loses its its luster. But it used to be the the drink of nobles in, in Russia. In Poland, the one of the uh, Polish princes is asked to help the Pope during the uh, Crusades, and he refused to help because they didn't have mead in Jerusalem. So he wanted his knights to have mead. So these mead is very closely connected to battle. So the Vikings would drink it before battle. The Goths would drink it before battle. The Gauls would drink it 
And so it's, uh, it's, it, it's a drink of like, before they would go into their quest, they would get sloppy on mead. And, <laughs> and then, uh, on the more contemporary sense, I found that mead was really kind of our first, uh, American home brew. Like we were, we were making meat at home and telling people how to make meat at home before, you know, we would have home brewing kits. It's a, it's a fascinating, um, it's a fascinating study into, um, a drink that gets, gets popular about every 2000 years. Now you've not mentioned, uh, one big empire that mentions meat and that's the Lord of the Rings. Um, what, how does your book cover, uh, that era of time and meat. <laughs> uh, the Lord of the Rings, the uh, the Frodo's, and uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, seeing how that was a, no, uh, a non-existent world, I uh, just completely skipped over it. Sorry. Ah, <laughs> uh, I'm too bad. Well, you know, to I, be I, fair, actually, I, I first... tried to stick to I tried to stick to the uh, real stories as much as possible say that it's funny because mead, mead was been one of those things where uh, as a kid i've, I've read uh, books that had mead and you always have like like you said it was like middle earth type thing you'd have the the adventurers drink mead and then they'd go off and adventure and and that was that and and it was one of those things that i knew was probably an alcoholic beverage at some point in my life i realized oh this is alcohol uh and never really truly asked what it was until because i stopped reading those books i guess and then at some point in my 30s i'm like i saw mead on a menu and i'm like oh mead what is mead and then i taste it, i'm like oh this is made of honey this has to be made of honey it was completely uh i was completely oblivious to what mead actually was um so i that, that that's great i mean i think it sounds like with all, with every book you've written it gets into high detail and tells a story based on on history and 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 and, and it's obviously well researched um are have has this gotten you to drink mead are you uh, have you partaken a lot of mead drinking or this was purely a historical look at mead and and, and not so much the drinking uh no yeah no i have uh i definitely i have a like a how to make mead section oh. because there's a lot of fascination with making mead i do make mead myself um uh, and i have a um, a lot of the different types of variants out, out there the one thing is is that you can't Meat is not to a point where I feel I feel confident in and that I can provide like um, reviews on them and you would be able to go find them. So like I could write a review on a mead and the like that mead will be completely different the next time, you know, so because the meat, the sometimes the honey bases will change. So there's a lot of um, inconsistencies there. Because, you know, the it, depending on how they do their blends for their honey and like how they choose to do that, you, what you'll find is is that a honey batch will taste different from wherever the the bees are gathering pollen and nectar, and and so one 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 set of bees could have something that's smoky, the next one could be really floral and sweet, and you just cannot. Uh, you can't discount that, you know, so that it's like kind of like a, a unique terroir and there's ways to get bees to forage and avocados and things like that, that you really want from that flavor. So there's ways to do that, but you have to pay a premium for those, for those honeys. With that said, uh, I believe mead is an incredible cocktail ingredient. You can, you'll find that mead can be a complement or perhaps a replacement to vermouth and a martini or a vesper 
Uh, I find it uh, it mixes incredibly well with with recipes that are already calling for honey. So it's just it's just a fun all around uh, drink. Oh, that, that's awesome. I, I've only I honestly have only had a few glasses of mead, um, and, and it's definitely on the sweeter side for my palate. But uh, I would say I've had so few, and also um, um, avocado. <laughs> <laughs> these uh, around avocados just to give you a better meat. That's that's amazing. I love that. Uh, um, yeah, well, you ever had avocado honey? Yeah, I, no, I don't think I have. I've, no, I have not. Yeah, it's, uh, Google okay. it. It's it's really it look it doesn't look like honey. It looks it's really really dark. Uh, it's gonna be one of those things that uh, marketers will will pick up and on start start saying, hey, honey's healthy. What if? Uh... <laughs> That means mead must be healthy as well, and you'll see the article of the. Well, you know, uh, that's a great point. You know, it, it actually, it actually can, you know, uh, you know, benefit to that sort of thing. Like, uh, it, it will have some of those com- some some of those same components as as the honey. Um, it'll be at a much lesser degree. Don't get me wrong, but keep in mind that. The, the whole purpose of, um, you know, one of the big reasons why I chose to pursue uh, mead was it's sustainable. You know, so by encouraging honey, you are encouraging bees pollinating the world. And, you know, without bees, we basically have a, a much different world to live in. And thankfully, bees don't listen to tariffs, so we, 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 can, we can work on that uh, without having to worry about it. But they do get... Honey, honey does get uh, Tara from time to time, so that that does happen. Um, you um, you have uh, you're launching have launched a new magazine called Bourbon Plus. Um, yeah, that's a pretty big deal. You've you've now you've written for a number of whiskey magazines for for many many years. Um, uh, tell us about the magazine. Well, so Bourbon Plus is a is a magazine that's about telling the story. Like we're telling the story of bourbon. And what I mean by that is we're getting in-depth, going in high-level detail of people's lives inside bourbon, outside of bourbon, telling stories that are not marketing protected. They're not, they're not things that you're normally going to read. So we're trying to take, we're trying to take uh, you know, the storytelling aspect of bourbon to that next level. And we're at the same time, we're also getting very detailed into you know, the science of bourbon. And other and, and other spirits, but mostly bourbon. And so when we write about corn, you know, we're going to tell you the you know the history behind it, and we're going to tell you the the in depth kind of scientific aspects of it. And so we're trying to be a very high level storytelling magazine that is different. You know, we're not trying. There's a lot of great publications out there and they all do a great job and I've written for all of them pretty much. And, um, this is really, this, this model is really based after kind of like garden and gun and a magazine, you know, that, uh, the publisher on this has, you know, created was called Cubby Rise, which is a affluent, uh, upland lifestyle magazine. And so this is really about, this is really about telling bourbon story through the farmers, through the distillers, through the bartenders, through the people. Hell, even you, Mark. I find I find you fascinating. So I mean, we may we may want to do a feature on you one day. So we're 
that's that's kind of what we are. Is we are, you know, someone who tells the story behind the bottle. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, and and um, how do people subscribe? And, and, and this is a print magazine, correct? Yeah, it's a print magazine. And actually, uh, you're the first person I've ever talked to about it. So, like, this is a little bit of uh, breaking news. We've been very quiet about it. There's a website out. Uh, it's Bourbon Plus, just like it's spelled. You spell it all out. It's They're on Instagram. They're on Twitter. But, um, you know, right now you can go there to find more information. We don't have subscriptions available yet, but they will be out soon. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, definitely, definitely check that out. And I think, you know, it, it's true. Uh, you know, magazines, uh, as, as bourbon and whiskey become popular, uh, magazines kind of work towards that, that broader audience that comes in. But uh, I think having, you know, that voice, that, that, that voice that dives deeper into whiskey, into bourbon, uh, specifically in other whiskeys, uh, is, is needed. Because I think, I think we do lose a little bit of that, right? Because when we have the popularity of whiskey, we, we've lost some of that kind of uh, more in-depth discussion uh, because, not, you know, that this newer audience isn't necessarily interested in that depth. Uh, whereas, you know, this, this is how this podcast works. It's, uh, you know, we're not here to provide information to the mass audience, but just, you know, if you really love whiskey, that you're going to listen to this podcast uh, and hopefully enjoy it. Uh, the idea being is to provide that depth. I think to that point, Mark, I've kind of developed, I've kind of developed a belief that quality will always sell, you know, and quality will always do well, you know, and bourbon, bourbon plus is, you know, kind of like you said that it, it's not, it's probably not for the beginner, you know, it's not for that, you know, that new, that new level consumer, unless you just like reading good stories. Yeah. Which, I mean, to, to be fair, it's, is is your wheelhouse. I think, think a lot of your books, yeah, you don't, you don't have to necessarily love bourbon to, to read, read, you know, uh, your your book to to appreciate uh, the story and same I'm sure the same is true for me. Um, so as we're running out of time, let's talk about Bourbon and Beyond. That's uh, happening in Kentucky, September 22nd and 23rd. Uh, I'm guessing tickets are still available. And uh, can you give us a little bit about that? Yeah, Bourbon and Beyond. Uh, Bourbon and Beyond is the um, is the festival that we pit. We have Sting, and we have Robert Plant. We have Lenny Kravitz, John Mayer. Uh, we have celebrity chefs Aaron Sanchez. We've got uh, Tom, you know, top chefs Tom Colicchio and uh, Ed, uh, Edward Lee from Louisville. And I curated all all the bourbons. So we have like this enormous big bourbon bar where you can, you know, there's more than 20 bourbons at this big long bar. And you can get a cocktail or you can get it neat. And we have more than 20 uh, bourbon seminars. And one that I'm really excited about is that is the Jim and Jack. Uh, what's the difference? And we have uh, Jack Daniels, uh, master distiller, Jeff Barnett, on the same stage as Jim Beam's master distiller, Fred Now. Oh, that's amazing. So this is a very historic moment to kind of talk about differences between Jack Daniels and Jim Beam. Oh, that's amazing! Because I'm sure we're gonna get way beyond the three bullet points you can you can say on that, and they're gonna they're gonna go down really deep, and, and probably keep it a little bit light as well. <laughs> the, the thing about um, about those two is Jeff is an incredible gentleman. I know exactly what Jeff will say. I know how he will react to to things. Mm-hmm. He is a um, an incredible in-person like presenter mm-hmm. uh 
Fred No, on the other hand, I have no idea what he's going to say and how many F-bombs he's going to drop and how many times he's going to say shit and fuck this and fuck that and, well, you know, this and that. So, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of a... It, it's kind of a study of like uh, like styles too. Mm-hmm. Like this is like you couldn't get two different personalities on a stage, and so I'm I'm excited to see how they interact. I'm emceeing this, and I mm-hmm. hope I, I I know it'll be gentleman like, but uh, you know you never know. So there might be that one heckler in the audience or something. You can't control that, but it, <laughs> it'll be fun. Oh, uh, that's amazing. Well, that, that, that sounds great. Um, uh, I, I might, I might make my way there. I just, uh, that, that's something I definitely would want to be part of. So, um, yeah, uh, that's awesome. Uh, now, now Fred, you're also ridiculously active on Twitter. So, uh, if you're listening on Twitter, uh, do follow Fred Minnick, uh, just spell out his name. Uh, he is, uh, you know, if you really want to know about bourbon and have it with an opinion, uh, I think, think Fred's your guy. Fred, Fred's your guy. Um, as mentioned, Fred Moon has published a number of books, including me, and you can go buy that at Amazon and all your uh, best stores. Uh, but um, also, Fred really wrote the history on bourbon uh, of American whiskey. Uh, that's a wonderful book, uh, one that I go to very often uh, when I'm doing research. And, uh, and of course, Whiskey Advocate, Bourbon Plus. Uh, Fred, you, you do a lot in this industry, so I really wanted to thank you for that, and thank you for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Always a pleasure. Yeah, I know. It's been great. Cheers.